Blog Talk Radio. Thank you very much. Um, so I, I did my doctorate in affect and social psychology at the University of Denver in the psychology de- department, uh, working with Daniel McIntosh and Anne DePrince. And um, I've gone on to continue to do research around domestic and interpersonal violence, but also in recent years uh, spent more time doing international research in uh, disaster psychology or disaster mental health. I actually hope to expand some of this domestic research on uh, domestic violence public service ads uh, to the international arena in refugee camps and and elsewhere. So the research that we'll be talking about today um, was a kind of broad three-study component of my dissertation work while I was in the psychology department at the University of Denver. Okay. And um, why did you come up with the idea of of looking at advertising on domestic violence issues? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I wasn't really studying advertising or consumer psychology, but um, I was a member of two different research labs, and one of the research labs, uh, the Lab of Anne DePrince, the Traumatic Stress Studies Lab or group, uh, has done a lot of research in recent years on domestic violence or interpersonal violence and looking at issues around attention, memory, and a variety of other factors. And as I was sort of exploring the literature and thinking about a topic for my dissertation, I kept coming across domestic violence advertising, um, you know, just through a basic Internet search or various um, search engines associated with peer-reviewed journals. And I thought, you know, this is really interesting to me because there are all these ads that seem to be increasingly popular in recent years. Um, You know, in some places like New York City, there's an annual anti-domestic violence campaign that runs on the subways and the buses. And yet, um, as I poke around, I see there's really not much uh, outcome research at all on what type of advertising is most effective. And, you know, some of the issues that we're looking at in the research lab around attention and memory, uh, attitudes, persuasion, a variety of other related components, um, these are things that You know, to me, it was sort of obvious that you'd want to understand how these factors functioned with some of the types of domestic violence advertising that was out there. Um, So I I really saw a gap in the literature, and I thought, you know, despite um, 
you know, my, my lack of specific background in advertising or consumer psychology, a lot of what I'm learning in the TSS lab I feel like can apply uh, to these particular campaigns in terms of better understanding what works. Great. Um, and I'm glad you did because uh, it is a topic that I haven't seen discussed before. If you would like to join us, do you have any feelings about these ads? Do you, do you think they're effective? Do you think they're not effective? Do you uh, find them hard to watch? Do you have suggestions about them? Whatever you would like to say or ask about domestic violence and advertising, um, advertising specifically regarding domestic violence, um, give us a call. Our phone number is 646 378 That's 646 646- Three seven eight zero four three zero, and you know, Courtney, this is terrible. I have to put my glasses on to make sure I just gave the right phone number. Yep, three seven eight zero four three zero. Yeah, I'm getting old as hell. What can I tell you? So, okay, <laughs> let's start out by talking about um, why do we advertise on domestic violence issues? So most what's, what's um, the most of the ads. Sure. You know, most of the ads that that I've encountered in my work are produced by, you know, a coalition of service providers or a specific service provider or, you know, a group, an advertising group that's subcontracted by a service provider. So for the most part, these anti-domestic violence ads are really designed, um, you know, much like other types of advertising, especially PSAs, to grab attention, to enhance memory for the content of the ad. But but maybe most importantly to influence attitudes and behavior. For example, to encourage engagement with a service provider, encourage people to call a hotline, perhaps encourage people to donate to the service provider or women's shelter or something similar, perhaps encouraging people to volunteer with the organization, um, perhaps encouraging people to engage if they see someone in a situation of domestic violence or if they themselves are a victim, again, to, to call or engage with a service provider or talk to others. So um, so I think that, you know, they're really sort of pulling for um, people to, to engage with the ad, um, to sort of digest the content, and then to be influenced by the content in some way. I mean, this doesn't necessarily speak to – also ads are often designed to – uh, speak to is sort of a subcategory of ads are designed to speak to potential perpetrators. Um, for example, oh, really? you see. I hadn't thought of that. Yes, yes. So you see um, advertising, especially you know, or public service announcements. You know, PSAs are sort of referred to as either. Uh, sometimes you see such ads featuring a male, um, featuring say, a mentor or someone saying, you know, something to the effect of domestic violence is wrong or real men don't abuse women, Um, sometimes using social norm information such as, you know, most men think it's wrong to hit a woman. Um, And so certainly there's a subcategory of ads that are really intended to do outreach, particularly to to male uh, potential perpetrators. I've seen ads directed toward, uh, you know, with, uh, that feature some sort of prominent athlete. Um, yes. Uh, with similar advertising. Uh, and, of course, you know, I mean, hardly a day goes by that we don't read or hear of some prominent athlete who's been arrested for rape or accused of domestic violence or uh, something like that. So I was kind of, when I was researching a little bit, I was actually kind of surprised to see um, how many ads there are that are um, – featuring some sort of prominent sports figure uh, talking about how it's not okay um, Mm -hmm. to hit women. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the thing that um, strikes me is that we're – does each ad have have a different uh, target audience? Or are they just kind of all hitting the same people? Well, I, I certainly think. Well, I certainly think that advertising campaigns, um, particularly around domestic violence PSAs, do have an intended audience that you know, again, is sort of typically uh, either women, in particular, who are in situations of domestic violence, 
and or their friends and family or, again, this sort of subcategory of ads that tends to do specific outreach to male or potential male perpetrators. But the, um, the PSAs that I looked at for my dissertation research, I really focused on the advertisements that appeared to be outreaching to women victims and their family and friends. Okay. Okay. And as you mentioned before, some of the other reasons that, that ads are out there is um, to raise money for the cause, um, mm-hmm. to... Mm-hmm. Uh, and increase non-victim um, understanding of the issue, mm-hmm. um, and those I think are, are are good reasons, you know, as well as the uh, safety for the victim. But do people get it? See these ads, and they go, "Oh my gosh, that's terrible!" You know, I mean, here we've got this woman that's all, you know, victimized and bruised, and you know, uh, or or maybe even has been murdered. Um, we see children in some ads that are observing some sort of domestic violence scenario, and I don't think very many people can watch those ads without being uh, affected negatively. Like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, but is that an effective response when you're trying to? accomplish safety for victims? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that I was interested in understanding is do some of these ads work better better than others? Um, and if so, why? And on what type of outcomes? So as you mentioned, you know, a, a number of campaigns, I think it's, it's probably the most popular strategy, not just in the United States, but we see this outside of the U.S. as well, to feature the face of a woman uh, with bruising, prominent uh, bruising and or blood on her face. So, you know, we've seen these campaigns around the world. We've certainly seen these campaigns in the United States. Um, you know, there's a, a recent campaign in Saudi Arabia with a woman in, in a niqab-covered veil, and basically uh, you can see her eyes through it, and one of her eyes is bruised. So this is a very sort of common approach. Um, you know, we've seen uh, advertising campaigns in magazines out of the U.K. where models are made up to look uh, bruised and bloody. So I think that in some cases this particular tactic is meant to sort of is certainly shock to draw attention to the issue to engage the viewer. But the question is, do these types of images compared to other types of images um, do they produce the, the desired outcome? So, for example, some other types of images that are common are um, smiling faces. So in advertising generally, particularly smiling women, um, tend to, faces tend to be engaging, period. And smiling faces in particular tend to be engaging. So it's sort of this incongruous ad where you see a smiling uh, face image and it kind of, you know, I don't know, pulls your interest and you say, oh, what's this ad about? And then you read the associated text and it may say something provocative like, you know, uh, offer a domestic violence statistic about prevalence and then say, I won't live to see my next birthday. And so yeah. it's this kind of, you know, sort of juxtaposition of, of sort of a smiling woman's face versus this very graphic, bruised and bloody image that I was particularly interested in. Some ad campaigns have also used sort of a back or a shoulder or a leg or an arm that's bruised in a campaign instead of featuring a face. Um, so because I was seeing a lot of uh, this type of imagery, you know, this, particularly the smiling and the bruised faces uh, featured quite often in campaigns uh, in a variety of locations, this is, this is really what piqued my interest around is one of, does one of these strategies work better than the other? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and what did you find? Well, so we did research uh, for a few years um, with three different groups, um, well, two groups primarily. Uh, one was a group of undergraduates at the University of Denver, and we did the first study in the, the research lab, so kind of an artificial setting where we showed people different types of imagery and posters and whatnot and then tested various outcomes. The second was, again, with undergrads, but we um, showed them types of uh, domestic violence public service ads in their classroom. So just while they were going about their day and, you know, attending class and whatnot, it was just various types of posters were posted over a period of several weeks in classrooms, and then we had an online follow-up study to test outcomes. 
And then the third group that we were able to engage with that I feel very fortunate about is um, a sample of women that we had been working with in Anda Prince's uh, TSS uh, lab or group uh, that were survivors of domestic violence. They were recruited through a police arrest record. And this was a sample of women we had been working with for several years and interviewing over three time points for a separate study, a triage study funded by the National Institute of Justice. And we were able to bring these women back in for this advertising study. And so we were able to ask women who were survivors directly. Of course, we had a number of undergraduates who had also been victims of domestic violence. But we were able to ask this uh, specific group of, of women community members, recent survivors of domestic violence, about their feelings and perceptions about the as well. So I, I feel that we were fortunate in that we had, you know, kind of this a range of, of different individuals in the study and, and the total of just under 400 participants. And, I mean, in, in brief, and we can unpack this a little bit, but in brief what we found was sort of surprising to me, frankly, um, and we found that um, in the first study that when we looked at bruised faces, bruised body parts or smiling faces in terms of the types of images paired with similar or essentially the same text, we found that people tend to remember the text better when they weren't distracted by a face. So when there was a bruised body part, they, tend to, they tended to remember the text better. So that's interesting. But in the subsequent studies, we found that when we took out the bruised body part image and just looked at the smiling versus the bruised faces and we looked not just at the memory for the text, but the memory for the entire ad, the image and the content, the, the text content, that across both samples of undergrads and um, community members, women, recent survivors of domestic violence, that on multiple outcome measures, the bruised face ads were preferred. They, um, wow. Memory was better for the ads. Uh, they were more persuasive. They um, increased likelihood of engagement with a service provider across uh, call and uh, donate and volunteer domains. In the classroom study, they actually um, increased engagement with a local on-campus organization, anti-violence organization. We gave uh, people the opportunity to volunteer with the organization. And, uh, you know, they didn't understand that it was connected to this larger study, but the people in the classrooms that had been exposed to the Bruce Face ads volunteered at a greater rate. Um, we found that, um, you know, particularly among the community members, the women recent survivors, that uh, they felt very strongly about the Bruce Face ads being more authentic and persuasive. Um, they were much oh, really? preferred. They were much preferred to the huh. smiling face ads. That you know, I, I imagine we don't really have the hard data on on why, um, um, but there was some you know sort of anecdotal responses indicated that they found this sort of smiling face image of the woman juxtaposed against this more provocative text a bit jarring or insincere. Um, so I was actually really surprised yeah, that our that. our results were as robust as they were. Hmm. So. Um but again, this was with students, and one of the of the, the studies was with survivors, right? One of the uh, correct community members, women, yeah. recent survivors community. who were recruited directly from a police arrest records. Okay. Um, what about? Well, I, I I guess some of the problems that I have with seeing this kind of advertising is that I think and I, I don't have research to, to uh, back this up. This is just my feeling. Um, I think that when people who have not experienced domestic violence see images like that, it separates them in their minds from the victims and from the action that's occurred. Um, in other words, um, okay, that's I've never had a black eye, so therefore that's about them, not about me. And mm-hmm. I I see that as a drawback um, mm-hmm. because domestic violence is about all of us in one shape or the other. The other uh, issue that I have with most advertising that shows bruising and, and you know body parts is that a, a huge chunk of domestic violence never involves a broken bone or a bruise. And so in my view, this type of advertising just reinforces the notion that the only kind of abuse a woman can experience is physical abuse. Do mm-hmm. you, do, do, can you draw any uh, uh, 
anecdotal opinions from your research in that that either refutes or uh, supports my little theories there? Well, I I think the the points you raised are important, um, and that's something that we had talked about throughout this research process and and heard some sort of informal feedback from um, participants in the research around this idea that, you know, does this suggest, for example, that emotional abuse is not important or it's not abuse and, you know, it has to be this kind of graphic, you know, facial bruising when, you know, although that happens, you know, a lot of abuse is, is actually sort of intentionally not on the face or, you know, again, we see a lot of emotional abuse. And um, and so, you know, I think that's really beyond uh, the, the scope of, of this study because we didn't sort of examine some of those other campaigns and the effectiveness of some of those other campaigns compared to a sort of a more graphic campaign. So, for example, some campaigns, some PSAs um, are really exclusively about emotional abuse. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they'll have they'll have taglines like, you know, the scars aren't on the outside or something to that effect. And so we, we haven't looked at that, but I, I think that's a very important component is, you know, do these types of, of graphic campaigns perhaps contribute to a misperception about, you know, what domestic violence is, you know, what it encompasses. Um, and then the other thing is I do think that, you know, it, it certainly can be the case that a lot of people shut down or tune out when they see certain things. And what we found is we were also looking at emotional responses to the ads. And certainly the ones uh, featuring women's faces that were bruised and, and bloodied, um, they did increase uh, negative emotions measured in a variety of ways while people were viewing the ads. Um, you know, for some people, again, that may sort of precipitate them to shut down. But it appeared to be the case that um, we the, the results were were not as robust around the um, emotion as a mediator in some of the outcomes. We we have some results that suggest that um, the negative affective responses played a role in enhancing memory. But I think we we need more research on this. But I but I do think um, it you know it sort of begs the question if um, one experiences a negative emotional reaction to these types of PSAs, perhaps part of what's happening with the bruised face versus the smiling faces is that that negative emotion is compelling the viewer to act. You know, we saw these sort of increased self-report rates of, um, you know, interest in calling, donating, or otherwise engaging with service providers. And maybe in some ways having something that you can do in response, like this kind of engagement or donation or whatnot, is a way to regulate your own emotional responses and sort of help to manage those negative emotions. So, you know, we've seen this in other types of advertising as well, and there's, you know, consumer psychologists who have far greater knowledge about this than I, but, um, but I do think that it's interesting to consider that if you sort of provoke people to an emotional reaction, at least for a subgroup of them, they may not shut down and disengage, but they may actually be more likely to engage, particularly if you give them something they can do. You're not sort of just leaving them with that yucky uh, feeling. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sometimes I think, as you pointed out, though, I I think that people get that yucky feeling and they just want to distance themselves and say, no, that's her, that's not me. That really doesn't apply to me. Absolutely. And I think they they kind of do it out of... uh, yeah, self-preservation. I mean, we we all want to think that somehow or other we could be immune um, from these horrible things. And uh, if you know, I think that's the whole just the victim blaming thing. If we can make it something that she did or didn't do, then I'm safe because I'll be sure to do it or or you know uh, uh, not behave the same way she foolishly behaved. Um, so. When did you do you have any idea of when this type of advertising began uh, in earnest? Has it been in the last five years, maybe? Um, longer. I mean, at, at least the last uh, you know fifteen years or so. I mean, we started to see kind of robust campaigns in New York City and elsewhere in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I did want to just and go back so to. Must- uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so I guess what we're saying is they must be effective or people wouldn't keep spending money on doing them. Um, well, you know, I I don't know about that. <laughs> I think that's oh, really? you know, something okay. that, yeah, I, I think that's something that one would assume. But 
for example, when I looked at outcome research, it looked like there really wasn't much outcome research, but one thing that um, people were saying is, oh, well, you know, during the period of the advertising campaign, we see an increased volume of calls. So, you know, that may actually mean that the campaign is effective, certainly in that it's effective in, in uh, increasing calls, or it may, in fact, mean that the calls have increased for a completely unrelated reason. I mean, for example, we know that um, rates of domestic violence increase seasonally. Um, we know that, you know, other types of media advertising, for example, some of the prominent sports figures who have been uh, involved in cases of domestic violence, that type of media coverage may have actually increased uh, community members' awareness and, and therefore resulted in increased call volume. So we, we don't really know how to interpret the increase in the call volume. And in addition, when um, campaigns like in New York City vary annually, um, you know, other than sort of trying to measure each year the relative amount of call volume increase, you know, again, there's there's no real comparison between campaigns and those changes in call volume may have nothing to do with the campaign. So I think, um, you know, again, I was quite surprised to find that, that there's been very little outcome research. Yeah, because in advertising and professional advertising for commercial products, I mean, outcome research is huge, is it not? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, certainly for commercial products, um, there there's tends to be a, a wealth of information, and companies tend to invest in this. But you know, I I mean, I'm only speculating. I don't know why we don't have more outcome research um, in in general in general for public service announcements. Um, you know, the type of outcome well, research I think that my, I found my, for. Uh, yeah, my gut reaction to that is that um, we don't treat. Uh, um, service or public ad, uh, uh, campaigns the same way that we treat commercial products. We tend to look at, sure. as yeah. we've been saying, uh, you know, we tend to look at these public service campaigns as, as something emotional, simply emotional. And uh, mm -hmm. how do we feel about the ad? Well, it's very powerful. Um, I wish I had a dime for every time I've read about how advertising is powerful. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Does that mean that mm -hmm. the people who are looking at it, you know, have their stomachs turned for 30 seconds and then they go away and never think about it again? What, you know, I, I think that what we're doing is, uh, at, for nonprofit, is we're, we're looking at it a totally different way. We're not looking at it from outcome necessarily. We're looking at it from mm -hmm. the standpoint of, you know, uh, the the initial response that the viewer would see. Is mm -hmm. that similar? Mm -hmm. Did you find that? that Mm -hmm. that the case when you were researching these PSAs? Well, I did find that there was a bit more literature, um, outcome research on sort of anti-smoking campaigns and other things, and um, I mean that in particular. Um, and I, I think that the PSA outcome literature has just lagged a bit behind, but particularly around the domestic violence piece, maybe because you know, the advertising campaigns have really um, been prominent in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years um, and sort of, you know, the outcome research is slow, slow to come online. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. I, I, I do think it, it is interesting. I mean, it, one might assume that cert, certainly, you know, uh, commercial products want to invest more in outcome research to determine if their product is is effective and and you know engaging the consumer. Well, and if their and product so, is going to make money. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I Whereas you know. Absolutely. I, I mean, and I think whereas, you know, with, with other, with the PSAs, you know, it may be um, that service providers just feel fortunate to have any kind of PSA budget. Um, you know, oftentimes a lot of domestic violence service providers are, you know, underfunded, um, understaffed, whatnot. And so, you know, a lot of providers uh, have limited budget, um, if any, for things like PSAs. So I do think, right. you know, any, any potential uh, follow-up studies that might be costly, um, are are probably low on the list of priorities and, and understandably so. Right. Um, you still you would think that the, the academia would be interested in, in you know doing some outcome research. You're you're the researcher. Would <laughs> yes. would it be interesting? I think to, to do that that research, maybe a student project or something, would be helpful. Um, because I do think that, uh, of course, one of my 
pet things is that we need to look at nonprofits more as businesses in order to make them mm-hmm. effective. And when you're talking a business, you're talking dollars and cents. So mm-hmm. you're not necessarily talking uh, emotion. Can be, mm-hmm. but not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. you are definitely talking dollars and cents. And so I think that we tend, we have to look at our, our nonprofits more from a dollars and cents standpoint when we're making decisions about, you know, the effectiveness of ad campaigns. Of course, with PSAs, you're not paying for that advertising, so that could explain why there's, you know, little interest in outcome research as well. You don't have to worry mm-hmm. about was this mm-hmm. an effective use of our of our dollars because usually they're they're contributed. Um, so that could be it too. I don't know. I'm just running mm-hmm. off at the mouth mm-hmm. here, but um, I do think that there's a difference between the way we view uh, commercial advertising and the way we we view PSAs, um, and uh, that. You know, I, I think that would make a you know all of you uh, budding researchers out there. I think that would make a, an interesting an interesting topic. So, kind of jumping back to the beginning, okay? We mm-hmm. are seeing advertising regarding domestic violence, and we're seeing it because people want to increase awareness of this mm-hmm. topic. Um, we want to um, speak to uh, survivors and victims. Uh, from a safety standpoint, mm-hmm. we want to, um, in some cases, speak to predators about that this is unacceptable and look what this does. Mm-hmm. But we really don't have any research showing us whether or not we are effective in using the ad campaigns that we've been using. Is that's uh, really this up? what I found? Yeah. Okay. Um, the uh, other issue that I see is that this domestic violence advertising that I have been seeing has to do with the immediate hit, um, the immediate impact, as opposed to long-term impact on victims. And I'm talking content here, which I realize mm-hmm. is not necessarily something that you studied. Um, but it, it, the advertising that I see has to do with shock value, it has little to do with long-term effect on victims. It has little to do with long-term social effect or, or impact. And it has uh, very little to do with anything other than physical violence. Mm-hmm. Am I missing something, or is that pretty much what you saw in doing your research? That's pretty much what I what I found in my research historically, in terms of, um, you know, the, the popular campaigns in the last 15 years. But I do think in recent years we are seeing a bit of a shift um, where some campaigns are focused on emotional abuse. And, and again, this uh, subgroup of campaigns are focused on reaching out to potential perpetrators. Um, you know, social norms messaging and, and a lot of this sort of male mentors saying, you know, this is unacceptable. So I think there's been a, a little bit of a shift in recent years Um but new campaigns that are coming out still feature a very similar type of, of approach, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, using uh, a woman's face as the prominent primary image in the campaign that tends to be bruised and bloodied. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so kind of the pathetic approach. You know, um, Sorry? So, so it, it becomes kind of a pathetic approach. We, we show you something that's you know shocking and pathetic, and then we expect you to engage because we've just shown you this image. Is is that kind of a, a summary? I think of, it is. Uh, I think I think it is intended to be very provocative and shocking. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And in general, now I understand you, you're topic isn't necessarily advertising, but uh, just in some of your preparation for your research, is this a typical approach to advertising? Um, I mean, I understand I think, that any know, good communication involves grabbing attention, um, but in in advertising in general, is this does this seem to be a common approach in, in your experience? I think... Um, from again, you know, not being a, a consumer psychologist, but what I found just in you know preparing and, and doing a lit review for this particular research is um, it, it seems that it is quite common um, in advertising to to try to have a, to, to use an image that's very provocative. 
Um, again, it's not uncommon to use an image of a smiling man or woman or child or something of that nature, but I do think it's also quite common uh, to see things that are intending to shock or um, also things that um, are difficult to understand. So an image that might be provocative, but you don't quite know what you're looking at initially. Um, or, again, the sort of... Um, compelling image but associated with potentially incongruous or slightly confusing text. I think, you know, a lot of advertising, the goal is to initially grab attention because, you know, ads are competing with, you know, so many other stimuli, whether it's other ads or other things in your environment. And, you know, certainly if, uh, you know, attention is the first component of memory. And so if you can't grab the viewer's attention, you certainly can't get them to remember the content of the ad or, you know, digest or um, struggle with understanding the content of the ads. And and presumably, you know, these are the primary mechanisms. Again, you know, with the emotional responses as well, uh, these are the primary mechanisms to influence behavioral outcomes, whether you're trying to get someone to engage through purchasing something or engage like we've talked about with a particular service a, a provider or um, with their family or community members who may be victims of domestic violence or in their own lives to take a step to reach out. Um, so, so yes, I think it's a it's a fairly common approach in advertising. Um, you know, again, in this attempt to engage the viewer, and some ads, interestingly, I don't know if you you came across some of this, but you know, ads are becoming increasingly sophisticated with technology as well. And for example, there is a domestic violence uh, ad that. Um, is uh, has an eye tracking component, and so as the viewer looks at the ad, it looks like a man and woman happily standing next to each other, and it says something to the effect of um, things happen behind closed doors or things never happen when people are looking. I think is what it says, and um, as the eye tracking uh, hardware notices a person looking at the ad and starting to look away, the image then changes and the man is hitting the woman. So I think we're seeing these kind of interesting interactive ads as as well as a way of grabbing attention and competing in an environment where we're really just overwhelmed with different types of stimuli. Yes, yes. yeah, and that that also is a concern of mine when we're talking about advertising on domestic violence issues is, you know, people, people I think, tend to turn off if they're exposed to too many things. I mean, that was the whole mm-hmm. idea. I, you, you can, <laughs> I, I, my undergraduate degree is in journalism, and so, you know, I remember uh, that the Vietnam War basically changed news coverage in this country because before that they mm-hmm. wouldn't show... Mm-hmm. A body. They wouldn't show, you know, um, some of the really graphic images that they showed during the Vietnam War on news coverage, and so that changed everything uh, as far as uh, portrayal of the news. And now, mm-hmm. you know, umpteen years later, um, I read about how people have become desensitized to that level of violence because of all the images that they've seen over the last few decades. Um, so that desensitization process, I think, is something that um, we need to concern ourselves with when it comes to advertising on domestic violence issues. Did you see any evidence? I realize you didn't, again, didn't gear your study toward this question, but did you encounter anything um, during your research that made you think that there was some sort of desensitization process going on with domestic violence education or advertising? Um, you know, that's... That's not something that um, I can speak to directly, but one thing that you mentioned that I did look at um, in in the three studies was this notion of competition of a particular ad with other ads. And so through the particularly the, the first two studies, um, the lab-based and then the community sample, um, we had other ads that were shown. For example, with the community sample of recent survivors of domestic violence, we had a component of the research where they were in a waiting room in between uh, sort of part one and part two of the research. And in the waiting room, there were four posters displayed, one of which was the domestic violence PSA. And then we had additional PSAs that were anti-smoking, um, you know, tourism, education, sort of more benign or mildly pleasant types of African advertising. And then we subsequently tested people on their memory for the ad. And of course, you know, they either received the condition where they saw the smiling face or the bruised face. 
And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we saw that the bruise-faced uh, ad did better in terms of engaging people and, and memory and persuasion and variety of other outcomes. We also measured the emotional response that people were feeling in the waiting room, not in response to the ads per se, but in general. We had a measure that was sort of asking how you're feeling emotionally at the moment. And we found that when we included this bruised face domestic violence PSA uh, in contrast to the smiling face, that there was a more negative uh, global emotional response. So we measured directly emotional responses to ads, but we also indirectly just measured emotional responses in a waiting room with, with this type of uh, ad, one compared to the other. Um, so, you know, part of what was important for us, again, was was to try to, you know, create sort of an ecologically valid context uh, in that, you know, ads are competing. So we wanted to put these um, domestic violence public service ads in competition with other ads. Um, but, you know, this disengagement piece I think is really interesting, and I, I, can't, I can't really speak to that. I can speak to um, there was a component in study two with the undergraduate sample um, where, again, this is where they were exposed to the posters over several weeks in their introductory psychology classes, and they didn't know that this had anything to do with the study or anything else. They just thought it was sort of part of the university environment. And then they were invited to do an online follow-up uh, study. And as part of the online follow-up study, we had three vignettes, um, two taking place at a dorm and one at a party, where it was basically uh, a scenario describing an unfolding domestic violence incident and then asked them what they would do. Would they engage? If so, how would they engage on, in a variety of different ways? Um, or might they not engage at all? And a third of the undergraduate sample, and this was true of men and women, a third of the undergraduate sample said that they would not engage uh, with at least one of the incidents. So a third of the sample said they would not engage at all. Um, with at least one of the three incidents described. So I do think that gets a little bit into, you know, people sort of, for whatever reasons, whether we're looking at bystander effects or whatnot, for whatever reasons, feeling like um, it's not their business or feeling like it's okay to turn off or tune out or disengage. Um, mm -hmm. We did not see a difference in the level of response to the vignettes based on what type of uh, domestic violence PSA had been displayed in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. Um, one of the other things that, that concerns me about advertising uh, for domestic violence issues is that none of it is hopeful that I have seen. None of it is hopeful. Uh, the emphasis is on the, the pain that's being experienced at that particular moment for that particular person. Um, and then with some sort of caveat about how this is a more universal experience than just one one person that you're seeing on the screen, it does not uh, portray any message of solution um, to to this issue. Uh, is that also something that you saw? And if so, did anybody um, react to that or even mention that in your study? I think... Um that's a good point. You know, no one mentioned that in, in our studies, but there was um, at least one campaign, and I think I might have seen another example or two of this, that, um, as I mentioned, you know, I was sort of seeing these uh, smiling face images of women, and and overwhelming majority of the campaigns like this were paired with text that said something like, I won't live to see my next birthday, or, you know, some uh, some jarring text emphasizing um, some graphic aspects of domestic violence and the immediate uh, security threat. However, a couple examples were smiling women with text like, I'm a survivor, you know, I'm your mother, I'm your sister, I'm your friend, or, um, you know, there is a brighter tomorrow, or things of that nature. So, um, you know, again, because I didn't measure that directly, I don't, I don't know how effective those campaigns are, but but I do think that that's noteworthy that there were very few that had this more sort of hopeful uh, framing. Mm -hmm. And from the standpoint of advertising, is it more effective, and by effective I'm kind of rolling it all together, memorable, um, you know, moving, um, motivating, whatever. Is it more effective to go with the more negative approach or with the more positive approach? Well, in my research, all I can conclude is that it appears to be more effective, more effective on the outcomes that I measured, 
to go with the more graphic negative image of the woman with bruises and blood than to go with an image of a smiling woman, you know, assuming that you're using similar text. Um, So I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I do think that the advertising literature that I encountered, again, suggested that graphic images or images that are incongruous with the text may um, be more likely to grab attention or, um, sort of enhance encoding processes that contribute to better memory um, than things that are sort of maybe um, more hopeful or less shocking or more benign or something of that nature. Um, I think another thing that's interesting to think about that we didn't measure that I, I you know, believe other people are looking at, maybe not with a DVPSA literature, but uh, in other ways, is this... Um, this notion of recognizing yourself and recognizing yourself in the person featured and to what extent that might increase your engagement or increase the likelihood of you disengaging. And I think that we see things, you know, around gender issues. We see things around issues of sexual orientation. We see things around issues certainly of ethnicity and race, of age. Um, and so it does appear to be the case from the general advertising literature that when people can recognize themselves in an ad, they you know, are identifying with the individual in the ad and they're more likely to be engaged or sort of compelled to kind of um, digest the message of the ad. So I didn't have the statistical power to look at that, even though there was some variability in my sample across things like uh, race and ethnicity and among the images that I used. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the whole topic, I think, of advertising in general is interesting, but advertising for uh, um, a nonprofit is at a different level, I think, and then advertising mm-hmm. to try to accomplish something like educate, protect, change values uh, in mm-hmm. areas where, you know, like domestic violence, uh, it, it's like a subset of a subset in my in my mind. And I really appreciated seeing your research, you know, and, and you know, of course it, it, it prompted more questions from me, but that's the idea behind good research, isn't it, that it prompts more questions. Um, <clears throat> but if you, now I understand that you're more into um, the, you're not making advertising studies your your focus for your career, but if you were to do another advertising study when it came to something like domestic violence, what aspects would you look at? Um, well, I have actually thought about that. Um, one of the things I would really like to do is um, a follow-up domestic violence PSA study, but in an international setting, for example, with displaced populations, um, refugee urban settings, or camp-based settings. Um, Myself and a colleague working in in Jordan are actually, um, have developed a proposal and are seeking funding right now for a study to essentially examine some of the approaches that um, humanitarian assistance organizations have used with awareness raising campaigns in refugee camps. And this includes very similar things uh, that I've been looking at around, you know, some of the uh, the graphic images with the bruising, but also things like incorporating social norms. And so I feel like that's really something that, you know, I kind of missed with this particular dissertation research that, that I would like to include as um, at least one condition where we're looking at social norms around sort of uh, masculinity and violence. Um, and to what extent, you know, uh, reaching out to potential perpetrators can serve a preventative function, particularly if you're using social norm uh, messaging to suggest uh, that, you know, most men don't find this acceptable. And um, particularly if it's a, a man that the intended audience can identify with, that feels like um, this individual reflects me and my reality in some way. So, um, you know, I'm hopeful that I'll have well, the I opportunity that- to partner with local service providers yeah. and actually do this this research uh, in in Jordan or even in Egypt where I used to work. Yeah, that would be fascinating. One of the studies that I would like to see done, or the research anyway I'd like to see done, is on localized advertising on domestic violence mm-hmm. issues. I think we tend to think of global things like, uh, you know, the woman from Law and Order and, you know, things like that that are, are very... Um, 
general, you know, very, very mm-hmm. uh, um, universal kinds of, of uh, advertising. But what about local advertising? What can the local um, domestic violence group do to not only increase education and make uh, safety more available um, to victims, but also fundraise? for their particular uh, organization. And uh, I think that there's a lot of, of learning that can be done by local organizations because, you know, radio stations, TV stations, they do make free advertising available. And with so mm-hmm. many um, uh, production studios now, I mean, your local city government has a, a, a channel where they, you know, broadcast their city council meetings and, Three people watch, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but there are so many facilities out there that could help local organizations put together a PSA, and the local media will run that. You know, they will definitely mm-hmm. run that. So mm-hmm. I would like to see more uh, research on the local, local. Um, attempts at advertising and educating through advertising, um, and um, um, so that would be that would be my little little you know list for Santa to come up with for next year. <laughs> you know, let us let us let us learn how to help locally um the the organizations that are struggling out there to try and provide assistance um and and by helping them produce their own um messages, you know, to potential clients, to their community, um and address things that, that are uh, very pertinent to that particular community. Um, so I think, that, I think that's, that's my little wish point. list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great point, and I think right. that actually speaks to a, a larger issue around, you know, local nonprofits, local service providers, and even internationally local groups, local you know non-government organizations. Um, very seldom having the resources, whether it's for a PSA campaign or anything else, any other type of intervention, very seldom do they have the resources to do a program evaluation to measure any kind of impact. Um, And, you know, I think that's that's really unfortunate that that tends to be, in my opinion, the budget line item that's, you know, left out or, or cut or seen as the lowest priority. And yet, you know, that essentially puts service providers in a position to be um, implementing interventions, you know, again, whether it be a PSA or otherwise, implementing interventions uh, on a regular basis that they have no idea if they're effective or not. Right, right. And can, are there suggestions that you might have uh, to help local organizations with those kinds of issues? I know that there, I'm, I'm in a town that has several colleges and universities, and oftentimes I will call um, a professor or call a class uh, teacher and say, okay, this is what we need to have done. Do you have a student group that would be interested in doing this for us? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we We've gotten a lot of really good information by just having a very limited um, local student group do look into that, mm-hmm. you know, either for a class project mm-hmm. or just because they're interested. Um, are there other resources like that that you can think of that might help a smaller group that doesn't have the resources to either produce advertising or assess advertising? Um, I think the the suggestion that you made um, based on your experience is, is excellent. I think that if there aren't resources available, trying to connect with groups at local universities is an excellent starting place. For example, at the University of Denver, um, Anda Prince, again, my you know one of my former research mentors, um, actually is involved also with a public good initiative there at the university. And for both her classes as well as other faculty teaching outside of the discipline of psychology, there is sort of a matching service at the university where local community groups can go and request support, essentially with research and other initiatives, and then faculty and student groups can be engaged with, you know, essentially no cost uh, to the community group um, to answer questions like, you know, looking at impact evaluations, whether it be advertising or, or in other ways, again, you know, applied research possibilities. So um, I think that, you know, not every university is sort of prioritizing this type of, um, you know, engaged scholarship or public good initiatives, but I think it's becoming increasingly common um, for universities to have some component of this. 
So I think to the extent that local nonprofits are sort of banging the doors of the universities, it's it's likely to kind of ignite this movement further and 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 increase the possibilities of these types of partnerships. So I, I think it's a great idea. Okay, and I, I see we're almost running out of time here. We're almost running out of time. How's that for literate? Um, we are <laughs> running out of time, um, but I would like to have uh, just a, a, a couple of minutes of you telling us what you see as the benefit of your research and how it would help um, domestic violence victims uh, or workers in the future. Um, well, you know, one of the things about... Um, you know, most researchers, certainly researchers whom I admire, is that they tend to think, you know, one study or even in this case three studies in isolation, um, you know, you don't want to draw a lot of broad conclusions based on that. You want to amass, amass additional studies, additional research, um, and then kind of do a meta-analysis of, of all the various studies. So I would certainly like to see more people doing research in this area and seeing if they reach similar conclusions that I did. Um, but at least based on the three studies that myself and my mentors, uh, Danny McIntosh and Anda Prince, and we also have a co-author on this paper that we hope will be coming out soon enough, um, John Schultz out of Cornell, um, at least what, what we're hoping, I think, from some of this is that the applied implications for service providers do suggest that at least when compared to these types of smiling face images, that bruised faces and bruised body parts um, although they can be controversial types of images, uh, they do appear to be effective in PSAs uh, in terms of some of the desired outcomes. You know, I know that some community groups in, in certain locations have even protested when these types of ads have gone up on buses or subways or whatnot. And I can understand, you know, I'm a mother of a four-and-a-half-year-old. You know, you think, do I really want my child exposed to that type of imagery? But on the other hand, I, I, I think the study suggests it's effective. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Um, to, we're we're so um, tied in to all of our different um, modes of communication right now. Um, you know, a hundred years ago when I was a child, it was like advertising was on the TV and in the newspaper and on the radio. And now there are so many other resources out there. Um, you know, the, that that can uh, convey a message. But I think that nonprofits need to. Um, become more aware and learn how to use these different methodologies to, in order to be effective. Do you have any final word for our listeners who might be interested in the issue of studying advertising uh, regarding domestic violence? Um, again, I would encourage people to go to your local university um, and bang on some doors and try to get some attention if you're working with a local service provider and you don't have the resources to um, do program evaluation or other types of, of applied or intervention research because I, I think that um, local universities can be such an excellent resource partnering with local community groups and I think it enhances the experience of the university-based researchers and students. So um, I would say don't, don't be shy about um, yeah. engaging with such resources until and unless we can get you know, appropriate funding where local organizations will, will be able to, to fund their own large-scale studies. Right. And I do believe, you know, personally, that um, nonprofit organizations need to get out there and create their own funding so they can do more things like, like advertising and, um, you know, education, public education. So I think sometimes people think that a nonprofit means you can't make a profit. Well, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't. <clears throat> Excuse me. You just don't spread it around among shareholders. You use it for the organization directly. And I, I, my pet thing is that I think that we do need to pay attention to uh, generating income instead of having to um, beg and and plead every every time that we need some sort of funding for something. So. That's a little bit of a side, but that's my issue. You know, I uh, really appreciate you being with us today, Courtney, and um, I, I've, I've actually learned quite a bit about this, and uh, it gives me some, some ideas to see locally. <clears throat> um, we have a quote. I usually end each show with a quote, and today I found an interesting one. I actually found two of them, and uh, one was from Mark Twain, which I don't – I don't generally think of Mark Twain when I'm thinking of advertising. But Mark Twain said, many a small thing has been made large by the right kind of advertising. 
and I think that that kind of speaks to our issue today. We need to make this this message large. The other thing, um, the other quote that I had, and I'm using two because I couldn't decide which one, is from Leo Burnett. I have not a clue who this person is. Um, He said, good advertising does not just circulate information. It penetrates the public mind with desires and belief. And I think with that in mind, I think it behooves each one of us who believe in causes and who want to benefit uh, the community to really um, penetrate, come up with messages that penetrate the public mind uh, with beliefs as well as desires to help end something like domestic violence. So it's a, it's an uh, interesting aspect of uh, this this topic here, which is advertising and, and value advertising and using advertising. So, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us and helping us uh, understand your research. Good luck in the future, and remember to join us next week when we have another new show on Three Women, Three Ways. Thank you so much for the opportunity.